Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different. And we've been voted the number one dialogue podcast because we feature real, different conversations about business, marketing, and life. Today, my buddy, Tim Tully. Tim is one of the most legendary technology and product leaders I know. He is the chief technology officer, and he runs all of engineering, product, and tech operations at $35 billion market cap company, Splunk. And uh, he's kind of a legend in the tech world. Uh, He was at Yahoo for years, and he did a ton there in the build-out of Yahoo's kind of modern business, if you will, and modern technology. And that spun out and spun up a whole bunch of other critical technologies that are used in the backbone of today's technology world. Uh, Most notably, Tim was uh, on the team that helped to create open source database Hadoop. And um, if you're in the tech world, you know how big a deal that is. And if you're not, well, Google it and you'll see. But (laughs) Hadoop is a major contribution to the data world. On this episode, we get into all of it. How to execute a big, bold product vision. What it takes to run a major technology organization in the era of COVID. Uh, And in particular, Splunk has a huge um, security operation, never mind uh, the fact that their technology is an integral part of how uh, many of their thousands of customers run their business. Why Tim thinks that software needs to be indulgent uh, in the way that uh, it delivers an experience and much more. Now, you may also recall we had Splunk CEO, uh, my good buddy, Doug Merritt, on episode 166. So if you want to dig into what it's like to be the CEO of a major public tech company, check out episode 166. Also, I need to remind you, and you know this if you're a regular listener, that I do have a business relationship with Splunk. So I'm highly biased, but there's a reason I'm biased. I believe that Splunk is one of the most important enterprise technology companies in the world. And what they are providing is essential for, uh, if you will, the data age or going digital or digital transformation or whatever you want to call all of that stuff. Now, um, Tim and I have had many discussions over the years. And um, no surprise, given he's an engineering and technology guy and given I'm a marketing guy, that we have not always agreed, but we've always had deep, thoughtful conversations. And on this episode, I was hoping we would capture the kind of discussion that Tim and I have in private. And I think we got that and a lot more. I also think you might find particularly um, fascinating uh, the part of the discussion about where Tim talks about what it's like to be an introvert leading a massive technology organization. Uh, I think that's uh, also fascinating. Now, as you know, America's getting back to work, but to win in the new economy, you need every advantage to succeed. And that's where my friends at NetSuite by Oracle come in. You see, NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system, including capabilities for finance, human resources, inventory, e-commerce, and multi-channel commerce. Uh, So with NetSuite, you can manage every penny with precision. Whether you're doing a million or hundreds of millions in sales, NetSuite gives you the visibility and control that you need to run your business today. And when you visit netsuite.com slash different, you'll be able to pick up uh, your book, Seven Actions Businesses Need to Take Now. That's netsuite.com slash different. That's your free guide, Seven Actions Businesses Need to Take Now, and set up your free product tour of NetSuite. Now, hey-ho, let's go. 
All right, Tim Tully, how are you? I'm great, man. I'm prepared to talk to you. I have my coffee. I'm ready to go. <laughs> I'm so stoked. I've been uh, looking forward to this with anticipation for a while now. As have I, man. I, I, I like talking to you. At first, I think you're sort of an acquired taste, but I've, I've acqu- you're like beer, man. I've, uh, I've acquired the taste. So I like <laughs> You weren't sure in the beginning, were you? I, you know, I'm skeptical about everything, man. I think that's sort of the engineer in me, right? I'm, I'm even like that with my wife sometimes on some stuff. I'm like, I don't know. You know, I don't like that baby swing. And then eventually I fall in love with the baby swing. So, yeah. <laughs> How's the baby doing? He's large. He's fat. You know, not a lot of motor skills or anything like that. He's a baby. But he's cute. He's really cute. So I'm, I'm happy. And in this uh, COVID situation, does that mean you get to spend maybe a little more time with him than you might have otherwise? Yeah. I mean, he's, he's sort of lurking in the house all day, right? So it's, it's interesting because I can sort of walk down or downstairs and, and sort of see him at, you know, two in the afternoon or whatever. So that, that's, that's different. You know, I would otherwise be down in Santana Row at the Spunk office. So it, it's unique in that way. Um, the yeah. sort of flip side of that is, you know, 536 comes around and I'm immediately home to have the baby dropped on my lap as opposed to, you know, sitting in the traffic listening to maybe your podcast or, or NPR. So I, I don't have that buffer zone anymore. Right. It's weird. A lot of people like that transition time. Uh, you know, e- even if even if a commute can be gnarly or whatever, a lot of people like that transition time as they sort of fl- flip switches from their personal life to their work life. Is that is that the case for you? Yeah, I usually use that after like that drive home time to sort of decompress a little bit. And it lets me sort of calm down. I'm always sort of like in this like amplified mode during work hours and my mind's sort of like in a different state. And I sort of need to like dial it down over time in the car. And so I like that, you know, that 30 minutes where I can just listen to something in the car and, and sort of calm down. Now I just hang out in my office for 15 minutes and like code something real quick just to like change gears a little bit before I walk down the hall. But don't tell anyone. <laughs> and uh, I'm under the impression you do a fair amount of uh, uh, coding. Is that true? Yeah. Um, not for... Not for the products, unfortunately. I wish I could. Uh, the challenge with working on the products right now is just, you know, the context switch back into writing mainline code is is large. So, you know, my job's pretty varied. It'd be just a little bit hard for me to go back into keeping up what's happening with what's happening in the mainline code at, here at Splunk. So, a lot of my coding more now is just exploratory, prototyping something, um, writing an app that I want for my house, like. The way I get my news right now is through my own newsreader that I wrote that sort of personalizes the content from sites that I want to see. Um, it's sort of like a, a personalized Google reader is, is sort of... And that's all you know. my Mac client that I use that, that uses that. And, um, and you just decided nothing out there was the right thing. So you were going to build your own? Yeah. I can sort of add features that I want to see without having to pay for it. And then it's also sort of an excuse for me to explore a space that maybe I'm not as familiar with. Like, I've written a lot of iOS apps for sure in my time and a lot of iOS libraries, but I'd never written a full-blown Mac application. It's, it's pretty similar, but it was an excuse to sort of knock that out. And now I absolutely love that app. Now, I, I wonder, I mean, you run one of the largest engineering organizations in Silicon Valley. And so it's not like you have a small job and your wife um, has a gigantic job and now you have a baby and all this stuff. And so... Um, how is it you have time to code? And why is this a priority for you? Um, you know, you know. I guess it's yeah. That's a two part question. Uh, how do I have time? Is 
you, you know, I think you sort of reach a point after doing it for so long that you know almost precisely where to go to get something done and how to do it. So I, I, I'm not saying like I'm the best programmer in the world. But, you know, I think I'm I'm pretty pretty darn good, but I can accomplish a lot. I think in a pretty short amount of time at this point. So, you know, if I have an hour, I can fit a lot into that sort of compressed hour by having like a very focused, concerted sort of effort around it. And I also think about it a lot in the background, like when I'm in the shower or something, I sort of think about how I'm going to solve that problem so that when I have that one hour, I just like go for it, um, I guess. And then, you know, from a household perspective, we have, we have, we're fortunate enough to be in a position where we have help both at, at night and during the day. Um, there's some downtime where I have to like hold the baby. I'm, I'm the main laundry person plus also the main baby washer. So I, I do that, but you know, I had the baby in my lap when I'm coding and you know, I have, uh, kids from my first marriage also, and they help do a lot of babysitting. And so, uh, I can, I, I can offload that. So you have a team, you have a team of folks. I have a team. I'm really lucky to have that. Uh, I don't have parents around on either side, but, um, I have, I have, I have a team in terms of why, uh, you know, it's, I think it's more, that's my passion, right? Like I really, really like building things. And obviously code is, is one way that I can do a lot of things in a very flexible way and have a lot of control over a system. And so I just, I grew up programming starting when I was like six or something. And I just, I just you sort started of started programming at six, Tim. Yeah. Um, I had an Apple two in the house, uh, and I grew up sort of playing video games on the Apple II. I had like, you know, the tape recorder connected to the Apple II with, you know, the VHF, UHF sort of connector to the television <laughs> on a cart that would roll into the living room. I, you probably yeah. remember those days. Mm -hmm. uh, and then my parents were like mainframe programmers in the 70s. So I, I sort of, of grew up. Yeah. At the, there was a Naval Air Station in Alameda way back when. And so they worked as sort of like mainframe programmers at this Naval Air Station. Mom and dad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you were you were destined for this shit. You're like a, you're like Steph Curry. Oh uh, yeah, I, yeah. I don't think my dad was Del Curry, but he, you know, I grew up with like punch cards lying around the house and stuff like that. So I don't know for whatever that's worth. That's the environment I grew up with. So you know, having growing up with that Apple II, I think really sort of influenced the direction. And then you know, I eventually got sophisticated enough where they couldn't really help me with it. So, you know, all the books were around. So I would just like sort of read all the books that were lying around the house in terms of, you know, how to crack software or how to, you know, write my own video game or whatever. But that, I think that Apple II opened a lot of doors for me. Eventually that turned into like running my own BBS at home and stuff. And how, how old were you when you started your bulletin board? Uh, probably like 15. I had like a bank of, um, you, you were, now we're going back and I mean, this, now we're showing our age. Like I had US Robotics was the company I was really into. Right, they made all the like really awesome fourteen point four baud k baud modems, right? So I had like this bank of modems, and when it really took off was when I started to host wares, right? So cracked version of Doom, essentially. So I would host a lot of that. That turned into people uploading sort of questionable content um, to my <laughs> to my bulletin board, uh, which 15. predates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, you know, I probably had about like ten phone, ten, twelve phone lines come into the house. <laughs> Uh, with a living room full of like, you know, 2400 baud or 14.4 baud modems. <laughs> did the did the phone company ever call up and go, well, what the fuck's going on at this house? No, no. But, you know, I worked at a supermarket when I was like 15 or whatever. 
to save up money to buy all those modems. So I would go down to the fries. And that's, that's what I would do is I hang out in the aisles and look for the 14 4K modems because those were that's what all the cool people had. Is the fries near Santana Row still open or did it, did it finally go down? I don't know. The, the one I really liked was in Fremont because I grew up in Fremont. Um, and then I would cross the bridge and go to that one in Palo Alto because that was sort of like the cool fries. <laughs> that um that one on portage there off oregon expressway uh yeah. i don't know i never really got into that one that you're talking about that one and i think it's in campbell or whatever because i didn't like the egyptian thing it was so weird fries was a weird place wasn't it it was but man that was like the right kind of weird though that's like where i would ride my bike to and like hang out on the weekend i would just like hang out and like walk the aisles and look at stuff that i wanted to get that i couldn't afford and what's it like for you now that you get to play with literally whatever you want, whenever you want. Yeah, I think I've built four computers in the last six weeks, I'd say, for like a lot of reasons that don't make any sense. Like, <laughs> like what? Like I bought my, I built my son a new gaming machine because I wanted to build a white computer. I built a uh, Bitcoin or a folding at home rig that you can put like eight nvidia cards on it just so i could like win the folding at home competition within splunk now now i am the number one folder in the in splunk um and and explain to me like i'm a drunken eight-year-old what that means (laughs) so basically there's this sort of like city at home like distributed software where you can use your um gpu or cpu to basically do i'll just call it work computational work um, for scientists. So in the case of SETI at home, they're looking for like alien radio signals, right? In the folding at home, they're basically doing protein folding work for, for, you know, biologists who are trying to find COVID-19 cures and vaccines. And so it's very analogous to the, to the SETI at home. And so it's, it's very computational heavy. So basically you get a, you get points for all the work, you know, work in quotes that your computers are doing. And it turns out the most efficient way to do that is on a graphics card. So, you know, you can take your Bitcoin mining or Ethereum mining setup and just like very easily point it at, at folding at home. And then everybody has sort of joined teams and so they've gamified it. And so there's a Splunk folding at home team. And so I've been sort of collecting NVIDIA cards rapidly so I can become number one. I finally became number one. I, I don't know. I don't win a prize <laughs> or anything. It's just my ego. <laughs> get stroked or something so I, I hey you're the chief ding dong and you're competing with the whole team on the full folding at home yeah i mean there's probably like a street cred essence to it that i'm after but there's also sort of like the competitive nature of it but also it's an excuse for me to buy more hardware to the first question yeah so you know i showed you my so you don't have to earlier. justify you have a reason to go buy all these new carbodingulators yeah. and build yeah, your own boxes yeah, it's, yeah just it's for science like that's why i'm buying this like thousand dollar nvidia card is for science it's to solve covid right not because i want to play the new f1 racing game that comes out just came out right or doom eternal or whatever it is that i'm playing in the background so yeah i bought a dell i bought a bunch of dell servers recently like one u servers just so i would have like a local i don't know so my rack would fill out honestly the real truth is because i want to i want my rack to be pretty you know, flashing lights and stuff like that. I don't know. I, it's hard to explain, man. Like some you just wanted like the cars. bigger the data center, the better, right? Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. It's are computers like, like snowboards for you? You always need one more. Yeah, yeah. It, it is. It's just I always want to go faster, or you know, faster on the snowboard, or you know, steeper mountain, or on the computer. It's like I want more RAM, or I want 
another, you know, 100 gigahertz. I, I don't know. Like, I just, it always has to be bigger and faster and stronger and, um, you know, whether it's hardware or software. So all this makes you like a geek's geek. I mean, you are as into <laughs> it as, I mean, it's just who you are. Yeah, I think so. I mean, that's, it goes back to your other question. Like, why do I want to build all the software all the time for myself? I don't know. It's just, it's a passion, right? Like, it's just, I don't know. It's, it's hard to explain, man. You know, some people like music and they have to create music or play music all the time. You know, I have to be building something or debugging something or, um, yeah, all the time. I remember I heard years ago, Dave Grohl from the Foo Fighters say that he's always writing music in his head to the point where sometimes it drives him nuts. Cause like there's all, there's always musical ideas in his head. Do you have code running around in your head the way Dave Grohl has music? Yeah, not, yeah, that's a really good question. Not code per se. Uh, I would sort of classify it into two things. It's either what am I trying to do next or what am I trying to improve? Or if I'm stuck on what I'm trying to improve, like how do I solve that? Like why, you know, how do I solve the problem that's in front of me that I, that I can't figure out? Right. And if that happens and I'm stuck, then it like starts to like really dominate my thoughts. And I'll be studying that, you know, maybe even during my own staff meeting when I shouldn't. Like it starts to become like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, like uh, borderline probably OCD yeah. where like I won't put it down I'll stay up till like 4 in the morning like I don't know it's like Stockholm Syndrome probably in a lot of ways <laughs> so yeah and so remind me Tim um, how, how many folks in your organization I try not to count it to be honest like I some people try to measure themselves that way I think it's a very silly way to measure yourself I'd say it's roughly it's getting close to 1800 2000 somewhere in there yeah it's okay, a big so team somewhere in that range big team and roughly how many products does that team uh, build and maintain oh. and so forth? Roughly. You know, we're trying to get away from talking about specific products now. I'm sure you just had Doug on. He's probably going to want to talk about suites and the sweetification of products. So I'm going <laughs> to toe the party line. I, you know, I very much agree with him, obviously. But <laughs> let's let's call it uh, let's call it a dozen. Let's say give or take, right? Yeah, and those are big product suites, right? And so I guess you know I got a zillion questions, but um, one of them maybe is. As a coder's coder, as a geek's geek, how do you make the transition from this kid who's building computers and doing all the stuff that you're doing to, you know, now you both run engineering and you're the CTO, which is unusual. Often those two things are, are uh, decoupled and, and you've got this massive organization. How do you transition from individual coder, product builder to... CTO and head of engineering for, you know, a major software company. It's not easy. I'll, I'll, I'll be honest, you know, if, if it were easy, maybe everybody's doing it. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll touch on a couple things. One is, is sort of more prescient, I would say, is it's, it's, and I'm sort of dealing with this actually right now with another problem that's happening in the, happening in the background is once like you even start to become a manager, forget the, you know, the fact that the size that the size of my team is is large. Even just becoming an engineering manager at first is hard because if you're like a true engineer, it's really hard to let go of just solving every problem yourself. Like the first thing your mind jumps to is like, oh, you know, I could solve that myself. I, I could code that now and have the solution out there and we'd be out of this this debacle that we're in, right? And you you have to very quickly learn that there's a team and there's a team that needs to get the job done and you're not helping the team by solving the problem for them. Really, what your job is, is is to remove roadblocks and help them solve the problem and bring them along. 
And you know what's what's fascinating about that. The reason I'm bringing it up is is it never goes away, or at least it's never really gone away for me. No matter what level I was at, whether I was doing the chief architect thing or I was doing the CTO thing, I still want to just like parachute in, firefight, and like get out. Right? And like you know, it, it's you know maybe maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that means like I'm the right person to be doing that job because I have this like fix it sort of mentality, and you know I tend to feel like I know the solutions to a lot of problems. But it's it's hard, man, and it's a uh, it's it's a real struggle. And even now, even with a two thousand person team, it's it's I still feel that way to this day. But in terms of you know more broadly to your question, if if the if the sort of like behind the scenes question really is is like how do you do it from a successful standpoint, and maybe it's still debatable whether I'm successful at this or not. I I, I don't know, but uh, uh, it's probably not debatable anymore, Tim. <laughs> just so you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the stock's doing okay and everything. Uh, you know, I, th- I think really it's interesting. I had this question yesterday with interns. Like we had this intern lunch at at Splunk, and they were sort of asking that question. They're all you know twenty twenty one year old kids in school, and they're saying like, "How do you become successful over time?" And really, what I, I try to tell them is is it comes down to empathy, right? And it hmm. takes a long time to learn that empathy and emotional intelligence. And I'll sort of tell you the journey that I went on a little bit. You know, I I, I tried to stay in IC as long as I possibly could. Uh, stay in what, Tim? As an individual contributor, and I see, like, I love yeah. to write code. I love, to, yeah, like I would love to be able to say I wrote that. Like I could point to something and say, you know, I, I built that. And then eventually, you know, you become a you become a manager. But my advice to them was, don't do it for a long time. Like get as much experience as you possibly can, and get broad, and become good at a lot of different things. But you know, sort of along that journey, you know, I became an architect, and then you know, chief data architect at Yahoo and I had responsibility for a lot of systems until you know my one of my managers way back when forced me to become a manager overnight literally from like zero people managed to like 200 so like, you went you from never managing people to a team of 200 I had managed some smaller teams you know 5 10 here and there in the past and then went back to being an individual contributor again um he did that because I was being I think basically a jerk Right, like I had become this architect, <laughs> like an ivory tower architect, where I could just like pick apart a technical system all day long and just like peanut gallery lob grenades at something and like, you know, almost break people down to fix things and like bend them to my will. And I think that was a good move by him uh, to make me do that because going from like zero to two hundred forces you to learn some lessons real quick, right? Like it's almost like electroshock therapy overnight right yeah you know i i think that is what he was doing was trying to force me into essentially learning empathy and emotional intelligence which to this day continues to be sort of like my guiding principle in terms of what i look for in strong leaders in my own in my own teams and that that move that he made where i had to learn it overnight i think was probably one of the most important things that happened to me in my career was you know i, I thought it was cool to you know, be the most technical guy in the room and just like find faults and everything, and just like say, "Hey, come back when it's when it's correct," right? And until you really have to take care of folks, like you don't you don't really you don't really know what it means to care for a team. Um, you know, I had mostly gotten what I wanted from an architect perspective just because I had leverage, and what you learned out learn over time is like the very best architects that you can have in a company, and I think we have that here at Splunk. 
you know, they obviously have high IQ, but they have to have high EQ because the, the mm-hmm. problem is, is they have to be able to influence and persuade large swaths of people without directly managing them. And that's what those folks learn to do. And, and, you know, I had to pick up that skill be, by being a manager, but those are the types of architects I try to hire now. And that's one of the reasons why I, th- I think Splunk does well is we have people like that. Like my head of engineering is, is cut from that same cloth. You know, he, he's an MIT grad. But he was also a Marine Corps officer for a long time. Wow. And he has this, he's like sort of like this unicorn, but then he's super high EQ at the same time. And it's just like, it's a remarkable set of traits to have in somebody. And um, that's sort of the, what I try to hire for my, for my direct reports as well. So maybe let's go there a bit, Tim. I, I've met some of your direct reports and gotten a sense for some of them and, uh, you know, have been very, very impressed. And so, how do you, as, as both a CTO responsible for vision, but as head of engineering responsible for delivering products, you know, now and next release and next release and next release, how do you build a team of people that, um, you know, that can get all that done? Yeah, you know, well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you how it works at Splunk. I won't say that's the solution for everybody, but it seems to work for us, which is I have an overall head of engineering. It's the guy I just, I just talked about. We have a CPO. Who's responsible for all product chief product management. officer? Chief product officer. They're joined at the hip, obviously. Um, you know, the way I see it now is they manage the bulk of that of that number of folks in my team. They keep the trains on time. They they're responsible for execution and delivery. Um, obviously, the buck stops with me ultimately. But the way I sort of see it now is I'm a lot more responsible for sort of what trajectory is the company on, what vector are we on, and I try to convey. And, and work with those folks as much as possible to uh, to achieve that. And so, you know, the number of people that reports to me now is actually fairly small. Um, it's really those two guys head of design. How many direct reports? Uh, it's like roughly ten, let's say. So, head of engineering, head of product, head of design, which I would love to talk about. Also, <laughs> if you're interested, in design. I know I know how much uh, you have a great phrase. What what's the phrase you use to talk about how you want the products to look? Uh, consumerization of the enterprise. No, but you had like, you wanted them to be beautifully tasty or I don't know. You had some great way of describing it that I'm not remembering. Oh, oh they need to be seductive. It has like... Seductive. That's it. Yeah. Seductive. Like, I, yeah. Well, I'll come back to that in a second. And then I have a yeah. bunch of those, those sort of like chief architect style guys that I talked about earlier. Super smart, still code a lot, high EQ, influence large groups of folks without having to manage them directly. Awesome with customers. Um, and they, they work for me and I sort of use use them to help sort of influence where we're headed and make sure that, you know, the platform is has natural touch points and, you know, we're not reinventing the wheel all over the place. And so those guys are in constant communication with each other, making sure that nobody's really deviating from the norm. Yeah. Hmm. And how long did it take you to build to build your team? Uh you know, I had I'm fortunate enough to have a number of folks that continue to work with me over the years. I guess that's the best way to put it. So there's a lot of really key folks that have, have come over with me from, uh, from other spots. Um, but you know, my head of engineering, it, it, took, a, it took a while to, to find that person. You know, that's a really big job. Uh, fortunately, we, we, found, we found Jeremy and he, he came over from uh, DoorDash of, of all places. Interesting. Um, which you know, is a completely different space with you know, different sets of challenges you know, mostly around logistics and last mile logistics, right? Nonetheless, that's a huge scale problem and a really fascinating set of, of problems 
that's in the cloud, right? So it's not that different. Um, he was previously at Twitter for a while as well. So he had seen what real scale looks like. And he's just overall really bright guy with that military background as, as, as well, which I, I like. And then we didn't even talk about the other side of the house. I also have security and IT in my team as well. So the CIO and the CISO work for me as well. Which is kind of interesting, right? Because in a lot of companies, that's in the either uh, direct report to the CEO or some companies CIO reports to CFO. Uh, but it's it, it seems a little unusual that CIO and CISO would report to CTO slash head of engineering. Spunk has always been sort of like irreverent and different, right? That's like so it just it continues in how we lay out the organizations. I mean, look, Spunk as a company is highly matrixed as it is. I mean, everybody right. has access to Doug, our CEO. You know, everybody has everybody has access to me. Like we try not to be hierarchical. In a lot of ways, it almost doesn't matter. But there are a lot of natural advantages to having that setup. Um, obviously, Splunk being an IT company, wouldn't it be fantastic if there was constant feedback on product features from a CIO and a CISO? Right, because because Splunk is a customer, a giant customer of Splunk. Right. So having them in the same org has actually helped us in a in a lot of ways. But also, you know, I, I think again. I have this sort of like vision of what this company should sort of look like from a technical standpoint. You know, it, it sort of transcends everything, it, you know, whether it's our products or even the products that we rely on as, as a company in, internally. You know, I, you know, it, it's sort of, it's interesting. One of my favorite things that we did when I inherited that team was like increase the amount of bandwidth to the Splunk offices by a factor of like 10. Right. I just, I just, I had to. Op- <laughs> Wait a minute. Op- I see a theme here, Tim. When you were a kid, you were <laughs> buying all those modems. So is it the same thing? More bandwidth? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was like it sounds small, but um, you know, it turns out we like yeah. our shit to go fast, right, yeah. Tim? Yeah. So that and you know, same thing I did with the Wi-Fi as well. I like saturated all the floors with even more bandwidth of, of Wi-Fi. But you know, I'm sort of like the fox in the hen house on that one. It's uh, it's a lo- it's a lot of fun. But you know, security and IT are our bread and butter as, as a company. Increasingly, observability as well. So having all of those together in the same org, I, I think, makes a lot of sense. And you know, I, I'm thankfully there to, to tie it together. And as I mentioned, those guys chat with Doug all the time. So does it really matter? Probably not. Yeah, because it's not like if any of your direct reports, or frankly, you tell me, but any of the direct reports of those direct reports, they want to talk to Doug, the CEO, or. Susan, the head of, uh, you know, the president of field operations or whoever else. I remember years ago, I had hired this new gal. Uh, she was one of my direct reports and she was responsible for corporate marketing. And she came into my office and she said to me, uh, I just got a meeting request from Jay, who was our head of sales, to come and talk to him about our user conference. And I see you're not on the meeting request. What do you want me to do? I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, I, um, you know, can I meet with one of your peers without you? It seems wrong. And I said, look, I don't know what they did at your old company, but I'll tell you, in this company, we're all up in each other's business. <laughs> and so if, if, if Jay sends you a meeting request, if I need to be there, I'm happy to be there, but you're a very competent executive. He's a competent executive. And so if you don't need me, why would I be there? But that seems unusual for some people. They, you hear stuff like, oh, you need to respect the org chart and, you know, shit along these lines in some places. Yeah. No, I have the same mentality that you have. Like, all I'm going to do is introduce friction into the system and possibly slow things down. Like, I'm trying to help us move as fast as I can. So, you know, if you can get shit done faster by having a direct line, by all means, please go ahead. But I think another nuanced aspect to that is sort of like security. 
like and self-confidence in somebody, right? Like in your example, like how threatened do you feel by having your direct report have that conversation with head of sales? If I'm the CMO of a company of consequence and I'm threatened by somebody having a meeting, I should be fired. <laughs> right, right. So you're you're unique, but I, I think a lot of folks for a lot of folks out there, it's like they feel threatened, right? And maybe it's like a job security issue or, or they feel like, hey, if that person can go around me, then maybe I'm superfluous, right? Like I, that, that I think is the mentality that a lot of folks will oftentimes have, even at, at, at a lot of levels. You know, fortunately, we don't see that at Splunk, but, you know, I, I've seen it in other companies. It's all, that stuff's always seemed asinine to me because, A, you know, in the example I gave you, uh, she's got the information that, that, that in this case, the head of sales wants to talk about, not me. She's got it in detail. I only have the high level stuff at best. And um, also, frankly, it's great executive training for her. You know, our head of sales is a very serious, big executive and exposure to executives like that is a good career thing. I would always, uh, I was the first guy at Mercury to say, hey, look, when we're going to do a briefing on a particular area, in my case, in marketing, I'm going to bring in the person on my team that's responsible for that. And I'm going to have the person do the briefing because if I do the briefing, I'm going to give you the thing they give me to present to you. And the truth is, I'm not going to have the answer to half the questions that you might have. And so why not bring the person, A, and B, it's great exposure for that person to spend time with the executive team, to build relationships, to grow in their career, to grow their own executive presence. And if anything, if they look good, it makes me look good. And 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 the I, I've always believed in radical transparency, but I I don't understand why that's not the case in more companies. Yeah, no, I'm, 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 I have the same exact mentality as you do. Like, I don't have all the answers, man. I don't have all the details in particular. Like, I'm just going to bring in the guy who understands it well so that we come to the right decision and not try to feign or pretend like I know everything because I don't, <laughs> right? And that's also really important because that's how you scale, right? And that's how you grow mm-hmm. for an organization. And I, I think you, you have to have a lot of self-security to feel like you, you know, you as a C level exec can sit there in the room and not say a peep and let your folks, you know, have the spotlight, right? It's, it's, you know, I think it takes some people a little while to get comfortable with with that idea. Um, so I, you know, I, I fortunately I'm also an introvert, so people don't expect me to say a whole lot anyway. So, so <laughs> that sort of goes together. <laughs> well, and actually, that's one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, Tim. You know, of course, you and I know each other, and 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 I know this about you, and so, um, and of course, I'm an extrovert, and so share with me, sort of, how to be a because I consider you a legendary executive. I've seen you in action. I know what you're capable of. I know what your background is. How do you be a legendary executive as an introvert when so many of sort of the you know, the models that we have and some of the celebrated executives you hear about in the media and stuff at least seem like they're more on the extrovert side. Yeah, that's an interesting question. You know, I always sort of see that that question posed and, I, and it, it it's it's a good topic, but it always makes me sort of scratch my head because I, I don't understand how we even got into this place of asking ourselves why introverts can't have jobs like that. Because a lot of these folks oftentimes are the ones that have a lot of vision because they're sort of like, you know, they're quietly thinking and sort of processing a lot of time. And so they have a lot of ideas that have been formulated and, and sort of baked. And it seems na- only natural to me that they would be the folks out there, you know, setting the table for the, what the future looks like, right? All they have to do is figure out how to surround themselves with 
with people who can help carry a larger organization along. And, um, you know, I, I think that's possibly one of the secrets to whatever success I have that you would call is I think I choose leaders well. I think I, 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 think I am uh, a pretty good uh, reader of, of character and what people are about. And I, I sort of study people and I watch them sort of quietly when I'm being introverted. When I'm sitting there in the room, I might not be saying anything, but I, I am, I'm observing and collecting data and like really starting to understand what people are about and what, and what they care about really is ultimately what you, you have to worry about. And so I, I think those types of skills for an introvert can actually lend itself well to being a strong leader because you actually really understand people. You're just not saying that much about it. But when you do speak, it hopefully is, is well formulated and comes from a place of, of you really understanding what motivates people. And mm -hmm. um, I, I think that's, that's sort of it is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very data oriented. Maybe I don't write it all down on paper, but, you know, I study people from across the table, uh, pr pretty close, not in a creepy way, but you know, <laughs> in, in a, yeah, I'm not like writing down what you wore every day or tracking your dietary. Are, are you following <laughs> with me with some Putin-esque bot to figure out everything? Yeah. And <laughs> no, it's, it's more about like, how do you communicate with people? Right. Oftentimes it comes down to like, what motivates the person that you're talking to? What do they care about? Right. And, um, yeah, I, I think about those things a lot. Well, and I've, I've seen, I've seen you, uh, on stage in front of, you know, more than 10,000 people. And, you know, so I've seen you communicate in, in, in massive situations and you're incredibly good at it. And, and, and so how have you learned to be, as you were learning to be a manager and then a leader, uh, a big part of that is communication. And again, stereotypically, it's not something you would, at least some people might associate with an introvert being a really effective communicator. How have you built your communication skills and your communication style? Yeah, man, these are really good questions. Um, you know, at first, I really didn't like it, honestly. I mean, for an introverted person, that's like possibly the worst scenario you could put somebody <laughs> into is in front of 10,000 folks or whatever. But then I, th I think what you learn over time is it's, it's, a, it's a forum to help you get your message out that you care about. And, it's a, and those people are there to hear from you, right? They wouldn't, otherwise, they wouldn't be there. Right. And so what I've sort of figured out is, is it's a fantastic, um, opportunity for me to get my, my thoughts out there, um, to get feedback on, on my thoughts, um, for, for people to tell me where I'm right and, and where I'm wrong. And, and over time, you know, my mindset sort of shifted into something where it's like, it's become pretty enjoyable. Now, the, mm. the, the question, you know, where I've worked with you in the past is, is like, are you able to get the message out that you, that you, that you want? That's actually a lot harder. Than, than it may seem, um, especially when you're talking about really technical topics. But um, I, I, do, I do enjoy it now. Um, I'd be lying to you if I didn't say I was nervous when I got in front of 10, 000, up on stage in front of 10,000 people. I mean, if, if, if you don't say you're just a little bit nervous, you're lying to yourself. But what I try to remind myself of when I, when I go out there, and this comes from reading you know, these TED Talk books and stuff, is you can actually use that nervousness to motivate yourself. right? And you can use it as a sort of an adrenaline shot. And so I think one of these books I read said, hey, jump up and down and sort of use it to excite yourself and, and start to become really passionate about what you're talking about. And mm -hmm. it, it's actually turned out to be um, something I, I feel pretty comfortable with at this point, almost to the point where I don't even like to rehearse too much. Because when I go up, I'm, I'm so excited about what I'm going to talk about. If I over rehearse it, what it does is it, it removes some of my excitement over time. And so that first time when I actually go out on stage, I won't be as naturally as ex 
excited as I, as I typically am when we're talking about technical stuff. And I think that's one of the reasons why I can do it maybe okay. I, I wouldn't say I'm great, but okay is because I'm passionate about what we're, what we're talking about. And that's why I don't like to rehearse. You know, it's funny that you say that because when I'm going to go give a talk, my favorite thing to do now is to get it done a few days early and, uh, and then not look at it for a minimum of 24, sometimes 48 hours. And that sounds crazy to a lot of people I know, but what it allows for me is it's, it feels fresher. And so it's, it's happening sort of, it's happening. Uh, it feels real for me in hopefully the way that it does for the listener. And to your point, if I, if the day before I spent six hours rehearsing, it may feel less real. Right. And so yeah. I, I like it to be real. Sometimes shit comes out of my mouth and I go, oh, that was an interesting one. I never said that before. <laughs> I never knew that I thought that, right? <laughs> but when you do that and you say that stuff that comes out of your mouth, that's maybe s- surprising or whatever, that's natural though. And I, I think that's what people, they enjoy is they feel like maybe they're just having a conversation with you and it doesn't feel like it's synthetic and manufactured or it's, it's just lockhead being lo- lockhead. And that's actually one of the reasons why I don't like Mel, my comms partner is going to hit me for saying this. <laughs> That's why I get really bent out of shape when the the speech coach person comes and helps you prepare and talks about using your hands and you know looking over here and look like because what it does to me is it makes me feel like I'm putting someone's putting shackles on me. Yeah. And it, it, it feels like it's sort of coercing me into being something that's not natural and not really allowing yes. me to be my myself. Yeah. Now let's maybe switch to technology. I, I'm very curious, Tim. You know, you have an incredible seat in Silicon Valley and in the technology industry. Your background is a stunner, you know, on the team that created Hadoop uh, and so many other things. And so um, maybe at a high level, maybe put me in your brain and, and, and tell me, you know, what you think about the technology universe today broadly. Wow. <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> you start at the very top with devising the consumer and enterprise. Everybody's moving to the cloud, no matter what. Um, I'm happy to talk about consumer all day if that's what you want to do. But let's talk about enterprise because I'm I'm here at Splunk. Um, you know, obviously everything is about the cloud right now, right? Everybody's moving to the cloud. Um, you know, it, it's it's interesting. You can sort of like segment folks into where they are on their journey towards the cloud. There's sort of like a caucus of folks who will never go to the cloud and they just want to run their stuff in like a you know air gapped container in the desert somewhere. And then there's folks who are like 100% cloud. And then there's a whole bunch of folks that are sort of in the middle. So it's almost like a bell curve, right? And so, you know, that's largely what we're doing, Splunk as a, as a company, is just going all in on cloud as much as humanly possible, right? And, and bringing our, our customers from a security IT and modern application development or slash observability, as we call it, perspective, right? And so what that means for us is is largely... You know, how do we build real SaaS software for, for folks um, coming from an environment that was mostly us selling shrink wrap software for data centers, right? Mm-hmm. And, and it's interesting to, to see folks be on that journey. Um, you know, had you asked me that question two years ago, probably what I would have said is like, hey, you know, there's this world where customers are either on-prem or they're in the cloud and it's like that's it it's, it's just sort of like this binary thing and so splunk has to figure out are we that or are we that and questions we were asking ourselves were like oh do we fork the code because the on-prem code is over here and the cloud code is over there what's interesting is how much has changed in that last two years because really what it is is it's two dimensions one is i don't think 
really anybody wants to be 100% cloud anymore. People want to be in the cloud. But what I'm seeing is a lot more of sort of use case usage of like this set of use cases on-prem, this set of use cases use case certainly in the cloud. And we want them to be as hybrid as possible. That's really the sort of takeaway from this is hybrid is, is sort of how people live in the cloud these days, right? And so a lot of what I started to talk about with customers recently is what Splunk is trying to create for folks is essentially a hyper-converged data plane, right? Where your, your, your enterprise data software, it, it's not really cloud or on-prem. Yeah, we can put you in one or the other if you, if you want, sure. But we're, we're offering you a, a set of products that can really be a logical convergence of everything across both your on-prem and data uh, and cloud needs. And we have software that does that, that can basically, and, you know, one of the big things we're working on is this stream processing engine called DSP. And what, what that does is it lets you build a logical data pipeline that spans both sides and can do a lot of heavy duty processing, both on cloud and the prem. But to you as a user, it's one logical pipeline that will eventually feed everything in, in the cloud. And so we're seeing a lot of customers be on that hybrid cloud journey. The other sort of dimension to that that's interesting is everybody wants to be multi-cloud now, right? Nobody wants to be just exclusively Amazon, for example, because what, they, what they're doing there is trying to decouple themselves from vendor dependency or vendor lock-in, right? They want to have a toe in the water and another big public cloud player. So a lot of questions to us recently have been, well, well what's your multi-cloud strategy? How does your software allow me to run it across clouds or, or move and shift or arbitrage workloads on demand based on potentially, you know, compute resource economics. Oh, I was just going to say is, uh, to the, to the multi-cloud discussion, as amazing as AWS is, and uh, it's, it's so far beyond stunning. I, there, there aren't words for me to, I mean, to think that Amazon would build the most important B2C company in the world. And if not the, certainly one of the most important B2B tech companies in the world at the same time, it, it boggles the mind. But uh, with that said, and you know, obviously, way better than I do, it seems like players like IBM and Google and clearly Microsoft uh, and others have come forward in pretty compelling ways as well. And so even though AWS has a pretty meaningful lead, you know, the other big players, uh, and you'll tell me there's others that may be important, have made big strides. Yeah, they have. And, you know, it's, it's interesting that Amazon has done that. Um, you know what they're what they're doing is basically building a moat, right? They're building a moat, both from the consumer the B two C side, but also the B two B side. And, and the way that they build that moat, especially in AWS, is is just by having hundreds of services. Like they literally, in the same way that they have every sort of esoteric version of toilet paper that you could possibly want to buy on Amazon, <laughs> they have those enterprise web services in in AWS. If you want to do <laughs> machine learning on video data, they can have I that. get three ply? Can I get three ply <laughs> yeah, AWS? <laughs> they probably have four ply. Like <laughs> what they've done is built this extremely broad set of of resources that can pretty much do anything that you want from a software construction standpoint. In the same way that they have every single product that you could possibly want to buy on the web, so it's, it's a good approach. Yeah. The other thing, you know, if I think about what's happened since the outbreak of C-19, from both a business and a technology perspective, it seems to me, that, and I'm curious about your reaction, both for businesses and for you and I as individuals, the fact that the cloud was where it was in February in terms of its maturity and capability has meant that from a business continuity perspective, from a business innovation perspective, from the ability, of course, to work at home, 
uh, our friend Eric Yuan and the incredible job that uh, Zoom has done scaling and Slack and, and you know Dropbox and Box and of course AWS and many other like the availability of all these key technologies uh, that are that are sort of around or on top of the cloud, so to speak, has made dealing with C19 both as enterprises and as individuals a lot different had C19 happened five or 10 years ago even. But that's just my perspective. Uh, I've never written a line of code. I'm curious how it looks to you. Yeah. I mean, we're really fortunate, honestly, to be in this position where, you know, there's this litany of services that we can we can use and mix and match to and compose really is, is what I would say we're doing and, and build on top of each other, right? And that, that's what we're doing in Splunk Cloud is we're mixing and matching different services, a lot of proprietary bits, a lot of you know stuff from public clouds, a lot of open source. And we're in a position from a software creation standpoint, but also from a team working and collaboration standpoint to be able to do that. I mean, a lot of those services that you talked about are really, there's a lot of collaboration software in there. And mm-hmm. what I'm seeing from the engineering teams is there's a lot of spots where the teams are actually doing better um, during the C19 era. Uh, and they're, they're really? more, yeah, they're more, productive because I think what's happening is is just to take a step back is because everybody's at home and we have all these collaboration tools like you you just talked about like Slack and Zoom being the primary ones that we rely on a lot. Um, people can have like very focused concerted efforts to knock out tough problems with no distractions. Like one of my favorite episodes is that Seinfeld episode with the stop and chat. I don't know if you or maybe it was Curb Your Enthusiasm where Larry David basically hates the stop and chat. Like He's walking down the street and he <laughs> runs into somebody that he doesn't want to talk to. He'll like do a 180 and turn around and walk the other direction. I mean, there's so there's so many stop and chats in your life in a in a tech office. I mean, you probably lose like an hour a day just like having random water pool conversations. Conversation right. It could take a while to go uh, to go relieve yourself at the men's room, right? Because right? I you- mean, it could, it could take you 25 minutes to go do that, right? Like, which should otherwise take you 10 seconds or 30 seconds. Like, all of that's gone, right? All the commutes are gone, right? People have problems, they can just jam it in the Slack and then suddenly everyone's aware. Like it's it's facilitating more rapid communication and really what I think is more concentrated effort around and, and rallying of folks around problems. It's 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 interesting to see that happening. In fact, we're in the middle of one of this, these things where we're trying to add a ton of scale to one of our products. People are literally on it worldwide around the clock. I, I have to literally mm. wake up in the morning, catch up on the Slack channels and find out what happened overnight because we have folks in like Barcelona working on it. Because your, your folks are, are cranking while you're, uh, while you're sleeping. Yeah. I mean, for, <laughs> thankfully, uh, I would love to be cranking on those problems as well. But um, thankfully, they're, they're, they're doing that. And, you know, the other thing is, is for me is I feel like I'm personally thriving in this environment because a lot of my distractions are removed. You know, I'm able to stay on top of Slack and email really, really quickly while I'm in Zooms. Um, so it lets me multitask a lot more. You know, I can knock out more one-on-ones with folks. I can I can even disseminate information more powerfully because what it's forced me to do is create videos. Like I've gone to this format where instead of having an all hands once a quarter, I literally film my own videos here and edit them myself on my computer and then send them out weekly with news bites around what's happening in the team. And I'll have guests on the show, similar to what you're doing, and ask them questions about what's happening within Splunk. And so I'm actually becoming a better communicator in this environment. Hmm. It's so interesting that you say that er, er, early on in this crisis, or fairly early on in this crisis, we had both uh, former Navy SEAL Chris Fussell, who's now the president of McChrystal Group, and then we had uh, General McChrystal uh, as well. 
And a big thing they've been talking a lot about is this notion of digital leadership. And, and what do we do in a world where, frankly, we're not going to be around our people very much? And of course, now, uh, you know, we, we've had this, this sort of aha that, um, you know, this is going to go on for quite a while and, and, and work's going to be very different even once we get through this thing. And so it sounds like you've embraced this, you know, what the McChrystal guys call digital leadership pretty powerfully. Yeah, I haven't heard that team, but it sounds it sounds right. Yeah, especially on that communication communication front, I it's it's maybe even more comfortable for me to be to be leading in this kind of environment where you know I can slack people as opposed to go have a sit down one on one, right? Yeah, um, you know I miss the FaceTime that that's for sure, um, but I can have more frequent asynchronous conversations and not you know wait for a one on one to happen or or. Um, and you know, I can talk to a lot more people at once and and more rapidly. So uh, that's an interesting concept. I'll have to go read on that. Yeah, they've written some great stuff, and I'd encourage you to go back and listen to the two follow your different episodes with those two. They're amazing guys. Definitely will. I guess that's what I'm doing. It, it sounds like so. I'll have to go. I'll have to go listen. No, you're doing it naturally. It's actually very <laughs> cool. Uh-huh. Now, Tim, look, clearly you and I have a wonderful relationship. I could talk to you forever and I would like to, but I know you have a job to do. <laughs> Is there anything else you want to touch on? Um, you know, no, not really. I, I think, I think the, the thing is, is, uh, you know, for your, for your listeners, you know, Splunk is a very interesting company full of some very dynamic folks in, you know, including the folks in my team. And a lot of them sort of are cut from that cloth that we talked about today. So, you know, if you're out there and you're looking for a new role or a new set of challenges, Splunk is an amazing place to be. I oftentimes tell customers it's like the biggest startup in the world. We're like this, you know, roughly $35 billion company. But man, the velocity, the velocity and the the speed in in the company and the frequency with which we'll just turn on a dime is is incredible. It's it's very much like a startup. So um definitely want to put my own plug out there for uh coming to work at Splunk. <laughs> I love it. Always be recruiting, right, Tim? Always be closing, man. <laughs> Thank you, brother. It's great hanging out with you. You're a legend. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, man. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Anytime. Well, there he is, the legendary Tim Tully. And uh, I sure hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. And why not go to lockhead.com? And while you're there, uh, sign up for our newsletter, The Difference, and we promise to send you stuff we think is great, and we will never, ever, ever give or sell your email address to anybody. All right, we would like to thank the legendary Tim Tully, head of technology at Splunk, uh, S-P-L-U-N-K dot com. Thanks, Tim. My good friends at OneLifeFullyLive.org. This is the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. And if you want to make a difference to people in the inner city, particularly around entrepreneurship, Check out OneLifeFullyLive.org and make a donation like I have recently. Now, I want to also tell you about a new podcast that I am proud to announce. I am partnering with my friends at uh, Silicon Valley Venture Fund Mayfield on a new podcast called Conscious Capital. We had Naveen Chada on this podcast a little while ago. Check that episode out as well. And he and I really uh, hit it off. And that led to a set of conversations with him and his marketing team. And uh, so we've decided to create this new podcast series, and we have riveting conversations that explore how to build businesses that shape the future while making a giant difference at the same time. It'll be launching very soon, so please keep an eye out for it. It's called Conscious Capital, and you'll be able to get it wherever you get legendary podcasts. 
Uh, my friends at Bottleneck.online are the world's first dedicated distant assistant company. Check them out. If you want to figure out how to scale you in a physically distant way with a legendary assistant, check out Bottleneck.online. And my friends at Otranet have been building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for more than 20 years. If you want to learn how to conquer your category with a legendary website, check out atre.net. And if you can make a difference by digging into your wallet, now's a great time to do it. Whether it's helping fire victims in California on the West Coast, whether it's helping people who are displaced or... um, suffering from uh, COVID-19 and and things related to that, your local businesses. uh, If you can make a difference, now's a great time to do it. All right, I need to remind you that today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes. And this oddcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. Uh, I need to warn you that clearly the creators of this oddcast uh, may have been uh, computing, (laughs) may have been computing libations. Um, You know, if AI starts doing the drinking for us, that'll be really... uh, That'll be really depressing. Uh, we are produced and edited by living podcast legend Jason DeFilippo. Check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. Sarah Knox and Jamie J do technical execution, and they are responsible for the legendary lockhead.com. Show notes by Diane Gervasio. Remember to spread podcasts, not viruses. Keep your hands up and your chin down. George Carlin was right. Listen to Blue Rodeo. Only buy pasture-raised free-range eggs because chickens are people, too. Thank you, Candy Dandy. Love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to TikTok influencer Bryce Hall. Sorry, Bryce. We just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Uh, Please be good to each other. Take good care. Stay legendary. And until we're together again, follow your difference.